0: We're going to look tonight at John chapter 4. I don't usually come up with cute little sermon titles, but I, I don't know, it just hit me. <laughs> Looking for love in all the wrong places. Although I don't think that song is very profound. I thought the title fit. Um, the, 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 the song that I think is much more profound about the topic that we're going to look at tonight is from Julie Miller. I don't know if any of you all know Julie and Buddy Miller and their music. They live just down the street. They live right behind Bangla Java. Every once in a while you might see Buddy Miller getting his coffee and it's always, always fun. Um, they, they've written some just amazing music and great music for getting in touch with longings and the pain of living in a broken world. I think their music is some of the most profound that I know. Um, if you're interested in that kind of thing, you're interested even in thinking about how a Christian can speak about those issues into the mainstream culture and be respected while doing it, um, I encourage you to go um, get online, go to the Nashville Scenes website, and track down in the archives an article they did probably about five, six years ago now on Buddy and Julie Miller. It was a cover story article they did that was amazing. It's the kind of thing you would want um, a secular newspaper to say about you and your music. It was just, it's great. Anyway, um, this song from her album, Broken Things, which is a, is a great album, I Need You. Let, I hope, I hope you don't mind. I, I want to I read the words of this song because I, I think she really gets at this. I think poets do a better job than theologians, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to depend on a poet to, to start us off tonight. I need something like morphine, only better. I need something like a kiss that lasts forever. I need something like money that will not burn. I need something, and I need more than I can earn. I need something. What can I do? I need something. I need you. I need something like a cure for my soul. I need something like amnesia for things I know. I need something like a mother, because I'm just a child. I need something like an asylum, because I go wild. I need something. I need you. I need something like dynamite for the mess I'm in. I need something like a tattoo underneath my skin. I need somebody more than a lover in my bed. I need somebody here with me in my head. I need something bad, and I need it now. I've got something wrong with me. You better fix it, because I don't know how. I need you. I think Patty Griffin writes well about these sorts of things as well, if you know her music, and I'm sure you all do. Um, This line always just haunts me from her song, Let Him Fly, on her first album, Living with Ghosts. The proof is in the fire you touch. Before it moves away, the proof is in the fire you touch before it moves away. There's something there. We feel it. We feel it when we fall in love. We feel it when we see a beautiful sunset. We feel it when we are supremely aware of what we don't have. At times, I always um, I always make mention of this when I do weddings. Because weddings, people are feeling it. Wedding, whenever you do a wedding, you know that there are people there who are glad that they're married. <laughs> there are people there who are married and wish they weren't married. There are people there who aren't married and are glad that they're not married. And there are people there who are not married who are not glad that they're not married. But it touches everybody at a deep level. Everybody resonates with weddings Because in the deepest part of our being, we know that we were made to be committed to and to commit. We know that we were made to hear someone speak vows to us. That I'll be here with you. I'll be here for you in sickness or in health, in richness, you know, in riches and in when I'm poor, all those sorts of things. We know that we were made for that, and we know that we were made to commit like that, and yet we don't know how. And that's, I think, you know, very true of us. It's very true of this woman that Jesus meets here in John chapter 4. Who is the real Jesus? What is he like? That's what we've been talking about this semester. In John 4, as we're going to read this story, Jesus tells us who he is, what he offers and to whom he offers it. I think that's right grammar. I went to Berkeley College of Music, so if, if that's not English major, is that how you say it? All right. I was, I was struggling. I was like, my spell checker was happy either way that I tried to say that, so I was really not sure. Um, but let's look at John chapter four, because I am sure we need to read this, this passage. John chapter four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, in the New Testament, and we're going to start at chapter four, verse four talking about Jesus, it said, now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour, which means it's about noon, and probably about 100 degrees. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. as did also his sons and his flocks and herds. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back.' "'I have no husband,' she replied. "'Jesus said to her, "'You are right when you say you have no husband. "'The fact is you've had five husbands "'and the man you have now is not your husband. "'What you have said is quite true. "'Sir,' the woman claimed, "'I can see that you are a prophet. "'Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, "'but you Jews claim that the place "'where we must worship is in Jerusalem.' "'Jesus declared, "'Believe me, woman,' The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking to a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Let's pray together. Lord, we do pray that you would help us to understand this passage, that we too could be drawn to you. To, to, to be able to put our hope and trust in you. You are the Savior of the world. Lord, forgive us for the way we try to come to you so that we wouldn't be thirsty anymore. We want you to end our thirst, and yet you want to fill us and make us thirsty no more in a very different way than what we're looking for. We pray, Lord, that we would learn about our longings, that you would touch our longings, that you would that you would speak to us even through them and through your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Who is the real Jesus and what he's like? I think the main thing that comes through this passage is that Jesus is a relentless, pursuing lover. And I I use that word carefully because this is an interesting story. There are all kinds of Bible commentators that talk about this story say, the situation is a little dicey that he gets himself involved in here in a number of ways. It's socially very unacceptable, the sorts of things he does, and I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes. But there's even, you know, when Jesus, you know, partway through his discussion with her says, go call your husband, I think there's sort of two things going on there at that point. I think at one point he's wanting to make sure that she understands this is not a romantic encounter, but it seems like that. And there are things that Jesus does that almost seem to pique that sort of interest and that sort of desire. For him to talk to her at midday and to keep talking to her um, is, is rather a scandalous thing to do. You see down in verse 27, even the disciples are shocked and surprised that he's talking to her. And, and yet he does talk to her. He goes, he breaks through all kinds of social barriers to have this, and, and yet he he sort of touches her and and sort of gets at her at a level that's more than just a cool, rational discussion about theology. At one point even she tries to turn it into that. You see? At one point she, she you know tries to at first she doesn't get what's going on. She's you know thinking of it in a very you know literal, naturalistic kind of way. Oh, I, I want living water, that'd be great. Um, living water means water that's running, water that is like in a stream or in a river or that is gushing out of a a hole in the ground. It's not water in a well, generally, unless you knew that the well was fed by a spring. You would never call a well living water. So living water was regarded as more pure and more clean and more beneficial. She'd love to have living water, okay? But as he begins to continue to talk with her, she begins to realize, well, something different is going on here. And then when he when he says, go bring your husband, in other words, you know, go, go, get, go get your husband, because you would assume that a woman um, would have a husband in this culture, and she says, you know, I don't have a husband, and then he kind of, you know, exposes her. It, it's just really interesting um, what's going on here with, with regard to that. Um, there, there's, he's, a, he's getting at her longings, and I I just, I just think this is a fascinating story and and a a really good one for tonight because there are times, so many times in our culture, when we try to shut our longings down. I know this; I'm I'm an expert at this sort of thing. And then there are times when it's hard to kind of keep them pressed down, and that's what's going on with this woman. In a lot of ways, these these desires get stirred up, and and it's and, and it's at one level threatening but ultimately it's the path of healing. And, uh, and, and Jesus is relentless in pursuing her. It's good news for all of us. The good news tonight is that Jesus is a relentless pursuing lover. You know, often the stories about Jesus astonish us because he's doing some miracle or he has some wise thing that he says Uh, But this story, what's most astonishing and what astonished the disciples is the fact that he's talking to a woman and a Samaritan woman. This story is astonishing because what's revealed about Jesus is that he will not be bound or thwarted by social conventions. When it comes to the kingdom, when it comes to doing the will of his father who sent him, he will not be stopped. He crosses significant social bar- barriers to reach out to this woman. Uh, I, I was thinking, I was struck yesterday. I was talking to a friend of mine about another fr- mutual friend we have, who's a, um, a missionary. He's been a missionary for many years to Africa, and now heads up a, a ministry called African Leadership. And we were, we were, he, my friend, who's a pastor, was saying, I was talking to Larry Warren, um, who's our mutual friend, and saying, you know, oh, it's too bad about, you know, all these closed countries. You know, there's, you know, we're looking at this kind of prayer calendar for countries that are closed to missionaries. And Larry said, you know, Scott, there are no closed countries. If you're willing to die, there are no closed countries. <laughs> and I just thought, whoa. <laughs> you know, Jesus is the kind of relentless pursuer who just sees obstacles differently than we do. You know, this is, this is sort of... a a closed opportunity. You, Jewish men don't speak to Samaritan women, especially Samaritan women who obviously have a past because they're coming in the middle of the day by themselves. When all the other women, all the other women come in the morning, when it's cool and it's and it's a time to socialize. She comes by herself in the middle of the day. You don't have to have supernatural knowledge to know that something's up with this woman, and yet Jesus breaks right through that and pursues her. Now, what are the barriers? What are the barriers? Well, she's a woman. And, and, you know, I'm not saying that this is right. I'm saying this is the culture. Jesus shows that it's not right, that the culture isn't right. But in this culture, men did not speak to women without raising suspicion. Certainly not for very long, the kind of conversation, long, involved conversation that they have. But even worse than that, even worse than the gender barrier, is the fact that she's a Samaritan. The Jews regarded the Samaritans as heretics and half-breeds. They were partly Jewish in their ethnicity, but they were basically the people who had been, when, when Israel had been kind of taken off into exile, there were a few Jewish people left, and then you know, a bunch of other people got brought in and they intermarried, and so they had some kind of ideas about Judaism and the Old Testament, Um, but they got a lot of things wrong. And Jesus isn't afraid to say, you're wrong. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. But salvation comes from the Jews. What the Samaritans didn't understand, they didn't accept any of the books of the Old Testament except the five books of Moses. So there's a lot wrong with her theology, Um, but she's also a half-breed. As far as, you know, so, so the Jews would, ne- would not talk to women, a Jewish rabbi would not talk to a woman, okay? But no, beyond that, a Samaritan woman, even more so. And John, makes sure that you understand that. If you're not from this culture, he wants you to make sure you know, Samaritans and Jews don't associate, okay? So this is, this is not the kind of thing you do. And like I said, she's obviously a woman with a past. He doesn't need to be a prophet to know that something's up with this woman, um, the women do not come by themselves to the well in the middle of the day. Um, but she's not just a sinner. I think often she's regarded, you know, you say, well, she's had five husbands and now the guy she's with isn't a husband. She's this notorious sinner. She's a bad person, right? You hear, you hear that kind of thing. What you need to understand, she's also a victim of a very unjust society. In, in this culture women could be divorced for no reason at all. For no reason at all. And it seems that that's happened to this woman quite a number of times. Could be, you know, for various reasons. Who knows? A woman could be, you know, just like I say, no reason at all. I don't like you. I don't like your face this morning. You're gone. And just like in our culture, where we've, you know, as we've adopted and embraced no-fault divorce... It's, been, it's had horrific effects on women and families. It was a, a ridiculous social experiment um, that has, has, has proved really harmful to our societal uh, structure. So it was in this culture. Women were the ones who were made vulnerable and taken advantage of. And now she's to the point where she, the guy she's with now won't even give her the legal protection that marriage would provide But you get the sense that this is the best she can get. You get the sense that she's not just somebody who has sinned. She's somebody who has been sinned against. So she's both a sinner and she's wretched. Do you know what I mean? Wretched means that she's miserable and she's in a broken condition because of sin being in the world. Not just that it's her personal sin. And that's, of course, true about everybody in this room and everybody that Jesus meets and everybody that Jesus pursues. We're all sinners and sinned against. But you would miss. I think you would miss the compassion of Jesus here if you don't also understand that she's a broken woman, not just somebody who has screwed up uh, and done the wrong things. Here's the interesting thing. She's lonely, right? It's obvious she's coming here by herself. She's ashamed. That's why she's coming in the middle of the day, when nobody generally would, should be there. And what has she repeatedly has looked to in life to be her security? has let her down. So she's lonely, she's ashamed, and what she's looked to for life has let her down over and over and over again. Yet she's closer to the kingdom than anybody that Jesus has met. And she becomes the first missionary hero hero of Christianity. Even before the Apostle Paul gets converted, this lady has already led her whole village to Christ. And yet in a culture where women weren't even allowed to testify in a court of law. Jesus calls her to be his witness. You need to see how countercultural Jesus is with the way he regards outcasts and the marginalized in this culture. Well, how does Jesus pursue her? Questions. Questions are always a great way to, to, to pursue people. God does that a lot. He's always asking questions not because he doesn't know the answer. And you see that. Jesus knows way, way more than he lets on at first. But he still asks her questions. Because questions invite reflection. It's like after Adam and Eve sin in the garden and they're hiding. And God says, Adam, where are you? And of course God knew where Adam was. God is omniscient. He knows all things. Right? He knows where Adam and Eve are. But Adam and Eve don't know where they are. God's questions always invite reflection, always invite sort of us to pause and look at who we are and where we are. And that's what Jesus does here. He does something, certainly, that doesn't fit her expectations, and she's intrigued. The fact that he talks to her kind of catches her off guard. And she's intrigued enough to stay there and keep talking to him in the middle of the, the hot day. And then he uses questions to draw out her longings and expose what she's done with her longings, But he's so gentle. And I I, I couldn't help but, you know, remember this wonderful verse in Isaiah, the prophecy about the Messiah saying, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Do you know this about Jesus? Do you know he is the fulfillment? He is the one that this passage speaks of. Do you know what a, a bruised reed is? It's like, you know, a little blade of grass that's just sort of, you know, it's broken and it's hanging on just by... You don't even know how it's still hanging together. He's so gentle, he won't break that. A smoldering wick, he won't snuff out. These images of, you know, things that are just about completely gone. And the way Jesus deals with them is so gentle. And and that's what's going on here which is a huge contrast. Now, unfortunately, I skipped over chapter 3, so I just just have to trust that you know a little bit about Jesus' encounter with this guy Nicodemus. Let me tell you about it, because there's a very, very deliberate contrast between John chapter 3 and John chapter 4. In John chapter 3, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, who is the teacher in Israel, I think in the NIV it says a teacher, but in the Greek, the article is there. It's the teacher in Israel. He's, he's like the teacher, okay, comes to Jesus at night to have a discussion with him about theology. And he starts out very respectful, you know, good teacher, you know, uh, you know, talking to Jesus. And Jesus basically turns it into a fight. I don't know if if you think that Jesus does that sort of thing, but he does. The guy comes to him very respectfully, wants to have a nice little discussion, and Jesus says... No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born again. (laughs) And the guy's like, "Uh, whoa, who said anything about needing to enter the kingdom of God and being born again? And come on, nobody can be born again unless they enter into their mother's womb. And how can that happen? And Jesus says, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't know what I'm talking about? I mean, he just continually turns it into a, a very confrontational scene. And Jesus can do that when he needs to. But with this woman... He's not like that at all. And it's so fascinating that here, this woman who is this social outcast, this woman, you know, deep in shame and in brokenness, he's so gentle with her, and yet with this religious leader, he's very confrontational. He's wise, you see. He knows how to deal with people. And I'll tell you what, as I I was thinking about that, and just gazing upon Jesus that way, I was thinking... Boy, that's good news to know if you're like me and you're running away from Jesus all the time. It's good news to know that Jesus is wise. When was the last time you thanked Jesus for being wise? We often resent it because <laughs> he seems to thwart all of our, our fair designs, as that hymn that we sing sometimes. He, he often cuts us off at the pass. He does it out of love. But he's wise and he knows how to pursue us. Why does he pursue her? Why does Jesus pursue this woman? She's a nobody. She's a nobody. It's because the Father is seeking worshipers. Jesus tells us later. It comes out as as they talk about this. God is uh, seeking worshipers. It says in verse 23. Seeking worshipers. That's That's good news as well. That God is not just sort of up there, up on a a mountain somewhere saying, okay, come to me when you get good and tired of what you're doing. No, God is seeking worshipers. That's why Jesus is here. Jesus has come to seek and save the lost, he says. The Father is seeking worshipers. He sent Jesus into the world to seek worshipers. John Piper um, puts it well. He says that missions exist because worship doesn't. Do never, never disconnect evangelism from worship. God is seeking worshipers. He's not just trying to get people on his team. He's not threatened that the world is going to hell in a handbasket unless he can recruit enough people to be on his side. He's seeking worshipers. And not just because he's insecure and he needs people telling him how great he is all the time, but because it's true. And it's what you and I were made for. And I love this passage in, um, in Isaiah. Why is he pursuing a Samaritan woman? Because it's too small a thing, Isaiah says. Too small a thing. This is what God says to his, to his servant, the Messiah. It's too small a thing for you to be my servant. This is the father speaking to the son. It's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. God intended the salvation to the ends of the earth, even in the Old Testament. That's not a New Testament idea that didn't come into Jesus' head at the end of Matthew when he gives the Great Commission. Jesus, God has always been concerned about the whole earth and all the peoples of the earth. And when he sends the Messiah, he said, it'd be way too small a thing for you just to go to the Jews. I'm going to make you a light for the Gentiles. And Jesus is living, embodying that right now, even now, reaching out to a woman who is not part of the people of God. What are the barriers that we let stop us from pursuing the kind of people Jesus loves to love? There are all kinds of social barriers. Things that you just shouldn't do. Well, you shouldn't, you shouldn't tell people what you believe. That's impolite. You shouldn't, you shouldn't say something that might make people feel bad. Even if their life is just falling apart. Whatever it is, there's all kinds of social barriers that have to be crossed if we actually would try to reach people that Jesus wants to love. I I thought about this as well. Do we make any effort to become skilled at reading people and asking questions so that we can love them? Because you can really learn a lot just observing. I think Christians, well, I know, because I'm one talk so much more than we listen. And you've heard that have you ever heard that old saying god gave you two ears and one mouth so that you would listen twice as much as you speak. Well, we don't do that very much. Francis Schaeffer, who's a man I deeply respect, he's gone to be with the lord now, but he um, is famous as an apologist, as a guy who would talk about Christianity and defend Christianity, um, started a ministry called L'Abri, um which was basically like a place where people could come and have honest answers to real questions. He was asked one time if he had an hour to spend with somebody. It was all the time he was ever going to spend with somebody who wasn't a believer in Christ. And he was going to have this hour. What would he do with that hour? And he said, I'd spend 55 minutes asking questions and five minutes formulating a response. And I don't know many Christians that do that. But that's what Jesus himself models here. And then finally, has the Father's seeking heart touched your heart? Has it become your heart? And if not, are you willing to pray that the Lord would give you his heart for people around us? And I know, it's, it, you know there's particular difficulties at a campus like Belmont than other places. There's almost nobody that you will talk to on this campus about Jesus who hasn't been brought up in church, who doesn't think they've already heard it, and has rejected it, and is often very antagonistic toward it. That's, it's, that's a different situation than in other places, other schools. And yet the Father is still seeking worshipers. Will we be a part of that? Will we enter into this, this, this thing that drives him? Well, that's who Jesus is. What does he offer? He offers living water. And th- this is fascinating. Again, there's so many things that are instructive here about interacting with people who maybe are at a different place spiritually and maybe don't understand Christianity in in this passage. And I think this is one of the most instructive. He doesn't approach her by saying, you're guilty and you need to pray Jesus into your heart, you need to pray me into your heart. He doesn't doesn't say that. He doesn't, and, and her guilt is real, okay? Her guilt is real, but that's not where he starts. Her theology is screwed up. But that's not where he starts. He starts with her longings. And I think Christians are very uncomfortable with longings. I think a lot of people are. And yet we all live with longings. You live with longings because God, it says in the book of Ecclesiastes, has set eternity in the hearts of all people. People live with longings because God wants it that way. And yet I find, often, we're like this this woman. She says, basically, you know, give me this water so I don't have to thirst anymore. I don't have to ask for a drink anymore. We want our longings to to be turned off so that we won't be dependent. And Jesus is not in the business of doing that. But that's... I find, you know, in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. That's like the Jews out in the wilderness when, you know, Moses gave them, you know, manna. God gave them manna from heaven and um, they're like, they don't want to. We're sick of having to go get this every day. But, of course, Jesus teaches us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. It seems that God is pretty committed to the idea that we would be daily dependent upon him. It's true. I mean, God is not in the business of helping you kill your longings so that you can be an independent, stoic person. He won't cooperate with that because he's a good God. He made you for something so much deeper and richer. And there are philosophies and there are religions that will try to teach you how to kill your longings. It's the heart of Buddhism. It's Stoicism was the, in these days what that, was, that um, kind of idea was called. So Christians should never be Stoics. They should not be people who think that the point of life is to kill our longings, though there have been Christians that have said things like that, unfortunately, because it's not what Christianity teaches. It's not what the scriptures teach. Um, but neither should Christians be people who worship their longings. We live in a day that, you know, at, at some level you hear a lot about you know, how longings are bad, and, but more you hear about how longings are good. Just do it. Thirst is everything. Obey your thirst. You know? Now we laugh at that, but yet you know, they wouldn't be able to sell soft drinks with that slogan if it didn't tie into something we believe at a core level already. But Christianity teaches us to be a steward of our longings. They're powerful, wonderful gifts that draw us, as C.S. Lewis said, farther, farther up and deeper in. Why did God make us in a way that we would get thirsty and hungry? He did. He didn't have to. Christianity suggests it's connected to ultimate reality, that we were made to be connected to something bigger than ourselves, and we have daily, tangible reminders of that. C.S. Lewis says it well. I mean, I think Julie Julie Miller sings it so well in that song. There's this inescapable longing, inconsolable longing. C.S. Lewis called it the inconsolable secret. Um, He preached this in a sermon. He didn't preach a lot of sermons, but he preached one called transposition. I know that's a real catchy title. But this quote is amazing. And he's talking about, he's trying to describe this inconsolable longing that just won't go away. And he says this, in speaking of this desire for our own far off country, which we find in ourselves, even now I feel a certain shyness. I'm almost committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you, the secret which hurts so much that you take revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. Think that if we can name it, that we understand it and we can control it. I like that. We take revenge on it because we don't like it. It makes us feel needy and weak. But he says our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if that had settled the matter. Yet the books or the music in which we thought that beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty The memory of our own past are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. The sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged... To meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. Our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside, is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. That's good. That's true. Christianity makes sense of your longings. It doesn't say that they're pure, but it says they're they're rooted in the fact that you were made for something more. And you know, it's interesting. You can learn about God even from your longings. It's not a purely safe way to learn about God because your longings are twisted. But you can also learn about your longings from what Jesus offers. Because I'll tell you what, by the time you get to this point in life, you've had to live with so many unfulfilled longings and so many disappointments that sometimes you're not even sure what you long for anymore. I'm not. But Jesus comes and he puts a name on it. And he says, this is what you were made for. One of the ways you can even know what you should long for is by looking at what Jesus promises to give us. And if he promises to give things that we don't seem to have a taste for, well, then we need to pray that he would give us taste. Because it's what we were made for. You can, you can, to a significant degree, sear your conscience and kill your longings. But Jesus comes and says, I'm not going to be content with that. I'm going to give you living water. She's not asking for living water. She's trying to make do with a man who's not even committed enough to her to marry her. But Jesus says, that's not going to do. I'm going to give you living water. She didn't ask for living water. She was trying to make the best of a miserable situation. And you know, when you find out, when you're reminded of how miserable it is, that often seems very unkind. And it seems like, why is he stirring this up? Why is he meddling? He's meddling because he cares and he is not content with you trying to kill your longings. Jesus says we need living water and it would satisfy. What he offers has these connotations of cleansing and thirst quenching. If you think about relationship with Jesus in those terms. But it's something that God has actually been teaching his people they've needed for a long, long time. And one of the most powerful places in Exodus... The book of Exodus, chapter 17, God's people are wandering around the desert. They're thirsty and they're complaining. They're complaining to Moses about God, which is basically, you know, they, they, the, the Hebrew is they're even larger, you know, making charges against God. They're basically saying, God, you have done us wrong. And Moses goes to God and God says to them, says to Moses, I will stand in front of you In front of this rock, I will stand before you, strike the rock, and out of the rock come living waters, gushing waters. And the Hebrew is very clear that Moses is not just striking the rock. God says very specifically, I will stand before you when you strike the rock. You will strike right through me to strike this rock so that living water would come forth. God has been teaching his people for a long time about this, not just this need for water, but the fact that he was committed to giving it to them and what it would take. And the same God who spoke to Moses, revealed himself through the burning bush and said, I am that I am. Jesus stands before this woman and says, I am he, ego me in the Greek, which ties in exactly with what God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. I am that I am. Jesus stands before her and says, I am the one that was struck so that the waters could come rushing out. God was teaching in Exodus what it would take for us to get this living water that Jesus answered, but now he is offering what was promised. And the question is why would we refuse such a costly drink? Why would, we go, why would we go looking other places? Why would we refuse such a costly drink? You know what else Jesus promises that's amazing here? He promises worship that will transcend ethnic division. He does. He, he says, you Jews worship, the Jews worship here and the Samaritans worship here. There is a day coming... When all that worship was supposed to be is going to be realized. It's glorious. Last point. To whom does, does, does he offer this? And, and this, here's the, the point. He offers it to everyone. But it tastes sweetest to those who are broken. He offers this same thing to Nicodemus in chapter 3. And the interesting thing is if you trace through the Gospel of John, you find later that Nicodemus does in fact come to faith. You're not sure of that at the end of chapter 3, but later you find that he's one of the guys who takes the body of Jesus and cares for it. He comes comes out, as, as you will, as a Christian, as a follower of Christ. He comes to faith. We don't know exactly how, but it happens. But this lady, she grabs it right away. She grabs it right away. Jesus is offering this to everybody, but the woman at the well gets it quickly and more thoroughly than the teacher of Israel, which is... A warning for all of us, because most of us in this room are more like the teacher of Israel than the woman at the well. At least that's what we think. Of course, we are more like the woman at the well if we had eyes to see it. And we think that having eyes to see it is going to be a barrier to faith. But in actuality, she's much closer to the king than the Nicodemus. A couple other points just in conclusion here. Jesus, Jesus is astonishing in the kind of people he calls to be his witnesses. She's a sinful woman a social outcast, a victim of an unjust world, and she has bad theology to boot. But she gets it. And she brings her whole village to faith in Christ. So don't you dare, don't you dare tell Jesus that he can't use you. Repent. And here's the key. When she realizes who he is, remember at the beginning Jesus says, if you realized who it was that's asking you for a drink, it would change everything. She realizes. She drops her water pitcher. Her priorities change. The woman who has been hiding from everybody who comes to the well in the middle of the day is now telling everybody, seeking out people she can talk to and tell them about Jesus. Before, she was hiding in the shadows. Don't think that Jesus can change introverts into extroverts? He can. She realizes it. But what changes her, ultimately, is what is still the only real basis for hope. And I'll close with this. It's this. The Father is seeking worshipers, and Jesus is out to do the will of his Father. This is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible, where Jesus says here, when they ask him you know, about eating, and he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to finish his work. You know what this means? What this means is that Jesus' Jesus's heart was in the work that he came to do. He didn't come and do this work for you and for me begrudgingly. Jesus didn't come into the world and say, oh, that guy again? The Father, I know the Father wants worshipers, but come on, you know? No, Jesus is fully engaged in this work. He says, it's my very life blood, My meat and my drink is to do the will of my Father, the will of your Father, is that he would seek and save those that are lost. So don't, don't hold back. We can cast ourselves upon Jesus and his mercy because he loves it. It's what he lives for, and it's what he dies for. I don't know, have you ever, you ever been so caught up in something that you don't even, you don't even remember to eat? That's what, that's, Jesus says that's what it's like to love people like the Samaritan woman. <laughs> that's what Jesus says it's like to love you. He's so excited about it that he forgets to eat. I don't know. Do you think of Jesus as being that excited about loving you? Well, let's repent and believe what, what he says. Take him at his word. Let's pray together. Jesus, we're just, we're just amazed because there truly is nothing in us worth loving like this. But there is in you this heart of love that will not be stopped. We thank you for that. We pray that we would submit to that, that we would embrace that, that we would depend upon that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.